You are listening to the Coggin Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. In the midst of loneliness and dissatisfaction, Coggin wants to help you learn God's truth in a supportive community that pursues a full life in Jesus. If you want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org. so glad to be here. You did such a good job singing, and I pray that we're ready uh, to get to his word for work. If you brought a copy of God's word with you, let's open together to Romans chapter 3. Moving right along in this series. Romans chapter 3. Just kind of a, a, passion, a passion warning from the beginning. <laughs> I get pretty fired up about what God is, uh, is teaching me in this passage of scripture I think it's so on time, so you'll forgive me if I get a little, a little worked up in today's message. It's, it's just something I think we need to hear so bad. I needed to hear so bad in our modern society. And to kind of set the scene in Romans chapter three as we're gonna look at the first eight verses, I, I want you to think about that child that you've seen respond, let's say, poorly. Have you ever seen a child respond poorly to a birthday gift or a Christmas present? You know what I'm talking about? They tear open the gift and like, they kind of just cast it to the side without so much as a smile or a look at mom and dad or not even a thank you. Yeah, I've seen it in children before and it's, uh, there's lots of words to describe it. Let me be fair here. Uh, it's off-putting, Billy. Can we say that? It's, it's off-putting. And uh, what do you see in that spoiled child? Just, not just that they're spoiled, but what's behind, let's take a, a layer deeper. What's behind that? I think it's a sense of entitlement, isn't it? That they expected a gift, maybe even a better gift than you had the audacity to buy them. It, it's, it's an attitude that takes for granted uh, the faithfulness and the gift of of a mother and father loving their children. And you want to blame mom and dad, and maybe in, in some cases those parents are culpable for that, that idea or that attitude, but a lot of times it's just the child. Right? Mom and dad need to teach them, and some mom and dads, they, they love them enough to discipline them. And it's because the mom and dad loves that child despite the child that they pursue change in the child. But on rare occasions, sometimes the love and the patience and the mercy of mom and dad towards that entitled attitude causes the entitled attitude to grow all the more. And it's a head scratcher and it's off-putting and it breaks my heart when I see it. I think it does the same for God when he sees it in us. And it's that sense of entitlement, that that attitude... (laughs) of a lack of gratitude, if you will, that taking for granted the, the mercy and the favor and the blessings of God is what, what Paul is trying to get to in these questions that he answers in Romans chapter three. Now, it, we can't just arrive at Romans chapter three, so I wanna, I wanna do this, and I'll do this several times in the series. I wanna take us back to Romans one. So go to Romans one in your scriptures real quick, turn the verses 16 and 17 and underline it as we know now together that is the theme of the entire book. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is what the whole book's gonna be about. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. 
for the Jew and the Gentile, and he'll address them individually. Why? Because the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel and made available to you and to me in the gospel. Why is that important? He goes on to tell us. Because on your own, you have no righteousness. Only what you'll have in your own is the wrath of God being revealed or poured out upon you. And he describes that at the end of Romans chapter one and he's directing most of that wrath being revealed towards the Gentiles who have been living in depravity and everybody could see it and Paul discusses it and it's at that moment, do you remember, the Jews are like, amen, get those wicked Gentiles. But Paul's like, wait, you're not off the hook either. Though you think you are, you're not. The wrath of God has been revealed to you as well. And in Romans chapter two, he kind of walks them in slowly without calling them out directly like you Jews. He just says, hey, let me show you some things. It reminds me of that story between Nathan and David in the Old Testament after David fell into sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember that? A sad story and he sends her husband off to be killed at war, basically therefore murdering her husband. And Nathan comes up to David. He didn't just come right out and say, you're the wicked man. He says, David, let me tell you a story about a poor man and his lamb and how this rich man took advantage of him and ended up killing the lamb. And at this point in the story, do you remember David? He comes righteously indignant about the person, the rich man in the story. And it's at that moment that David is ready to hear that Nathan goes, you the man. <laughs> the story's about you, bro. That's what Paul does in, in Romans chapter two. He brings the Jews in slowly and then he's like, what we discussed last week, it was, you Jews, this is how you're missing it. And he attacks and really pulls out the rug from the self-righteousness, goes after the hypocrisy. And so what we find at Romans 2 at the end is that both Jew and Gentile, everyone in here today and everyone who's ever lived, what we deserve is the wrath of God being revealed to us because we are helpless and hopeless in sin. And it's almost like Paul can start hearing the questions from the overly pious, righteous Jew again. He enters into this conversation. It's, called a, it's a rhetorical device called a diatribe. He's having a conversation, not really with anybody, but really with everybody. And so he can hear these questions coming out of Romans chapter three. Like, are you trying to tell me, Paul, that there's no advantage to be a Jew? Are you trying to tell me, is it true that because we sin, God's righteousness is being nullified is if God's righteousness is being revealed through our sinfulness, should we sin all the more? And here's the questions that we're gonna address together. Romans chapter three, would you stand with me? Starting in verse one. Question one. Then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, and he's not gonna go on and list a bunch of things. What he means is primarily that they were, and I would even say you are entrusted with the oracles of God. Like that, what does that mean? This is the word of God, the scriptures. What then, second question, if some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written. And he quotes Psalm 51 which is, happens to be the psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now he's building question three through the rest of this section. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we do say, let us do evil that good may come. He says, basically he didn't even answer it. He says, if you think like that, that person's condemnation is just. This is God's word, please be seated. What we have here is just another example of Paul interacting with the Jewish mindset. And I started realizing like over and over again, studying Paul, interacting with and arguing with the Jewish mind, it hit me this week. Oh, Todd, the, the entitled attitude that Paul sees in the Jew 2,000 years ago is much the same entitled attitude that is in you today. Let me do that again. That's in you today. And we need to be very careful of it. See, like the Jew, we've been entrusted with the oracles of God, but we can take it for granted. Like the Jew, we live every day experiencing the faithfulness of God to us despite us, but we can take it for granted. Like the Jew, God's grace is patient with us. His undeserved favor is daily available to us, but that too, with the spirit of entitlement, can be taken for granted. So I do not want us to grow accustomed to these favors of God lest we become entitled like the Jew 2,000 years ago and miss a truckload of awesomeness waiting for us. Let's start with this first point that Paul is, is responding to the question, is there no advantage to being a Jew? And he says, of course there is. It's the word of God that you've been entrusted, which allows me to say this, do not take the scriptures for granted. That's what many Jews did and that's what led to much of their struggle. Last week, Paul listed something like six privileges that a Jew had over and above the rest of the world. Do you remember what most of the six of those privileges revolved around? Having the very law of God available to them. This should have brought what to them? Like it should bring to us when we have the scriptures, a heart of humility, a heart of gratitude, and a heart of praise. But instead, because of their hypocrisy and their lack of applying the law, this privilege caused them to become prideful, puffed up, and elitist in their view towards the rest of the world. So Paul gives them a proper tongue lashing, and then he goes into the questions here in chapter three. See, as Christians today, I don't think we're that different from the Jew in Paul's day in respect to the scriptures. We can take them for granted just like they did. The Jew had a covenant with God that was revealed in the scriptures and they took both the scriptures and the covenant for granted. You and I, as new covenant believers, we have a covenant with God in Christ. It's revealed where? In the scriptures. And sometimes we can take it for granted and we can take the scriptures for granted that reveal it. We too, as New Testament believers, can struggle with a sense of unappreciation for what's been given to us in God's word. 
Ask yourself, how many bound copies of God's word do I have sitting on my desk at home? How many copies of God's word do I have on my shelves in my office that I do not read? How many of you have a Bible on your nightstand that you never look at? Never in world history, and I say that word, and I think it's true, never in world history have we had more access to the word of God and yet read it less. Never in world history has a group of believers been more biblically illiterate than we are today, though we have more access to it than ever before. Think about your phone. You have access to any translation of God's word you could ever want, and yet many times we still do not read it. Something like only 32% of Americans who attend a Protestant church, that would be this church, we're a Protestant church, read the Bible regularly. 32%? I pray to God that that doesn't represent Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. I'm sure it doesn't. I'm just sharing statistics with you this morning. Maybe this message doesn't apply to you at all and it's just me, but I'm gonna go on. Something like 26 million Americans stopped reading the Bible during COVID. And they've continued to not read it today. So yes, as a whole, we, we take God's word for granted. Why is this? I ask myself, why? I can't answer that for you if you stopped reading it and you've taken God's word for granted. I can answer it for me though, two reasons. There's probably more, but I've thought of two this week. Distraction and complacency. Like, what, what are you distracted with, Pastor? Prosperity. Sometimes when I'm down and I gotta struggle and turn in the, gotta turn into God's word, I can just go buy something else. I can just click ship now on Amazon. And, and, and for many of us, we, we use shopping and spending money as a way to soothe our pain instead of going to God's word. It's just true. I know it's true. You're like, well, I'm not distracted by that. Okay, maybe you're distracted by busyness. The busyness of work, the busyness of life. And you say, I don't have time to read God's word because I'm working all these hours. I, I'm doing all these things. Okay? Like, that's not me. Well, maybe this next one is. We're also distracted, and this is gonna get so many of us, so just get ready. I love you. We're distracted by media. And we're going through a hard time. It's so easy to just eye guzzle. That's what we call it these days. And scroll through social media. Hours and hours and hours. Look at your screen time on your phone today for the week. Look at your screen time on your children's phone this week and just, just take a ponder. Take a gander, if you will. How easy is it when you're hurting to just go to Netflix, hit play, and eye guzzle for the whole weekend rather than going to God's word and dealing with your problem that's in your heart, that's in your family, or in the world? How easy it is, is when we're dealing with the world problem of what's going on with Israel to turn on Fox News and take on all the events. We gotta know all the facts and get so righteously indignant and get angry about it instead of actually doing something about it on our knees, which is a privilege I don't even have time to talk about today in prayer or go into his word and say, God, what do you have? to say. I hope I'm preaching to somebody beside myself this morning. I get so distracted just this week. I was opening God's word on my phone and I was reading it and a notification came in. You know what that looks like on your phone? It it's, takes priority and it just it showed up. And so 
I clicked it and it took me to a news article and I never got back to the word of God again. And I realized that what God had for me was never fed to me because I let the world feed me though it could never satisfy me. That's a microcosm is what we're doing when we get distracted with media or get distracted with work or get distracted with shopping. These things temporarily distract us. I don't even want to use the word satisfy. They're just distracting for a season. But then we're hungry and thirsty again. And I look out at my own life and I look out at the, the people that I know in our church and we're so thirsty. We're so hungry but we're seeking the distractions that can never help us. In fact, because they distract us from his word, they only hurt us. It's like drinking salt water if you're dying of thirst. Salt water will not satisfy you. It may give you satisfaction for a moment, but it'll only make it worse. That's what distractions are doing for you. What you need is the living water of God's word to satisfy your soul, to help you deal with word the world problems or grief or any kind of burden in the world. We're distracted, church. But we're also complacent. And our complacency prevents us from pushing through the distraction to get hope and healing that God has waiting for us in his word. So you say, Pastor, I, I own it. I pray that you would own it, would you? Would you own it this morning and say, say Pastor, I, I'm distracted. Guess what, I am too, that's why I'm preaching so strongly. Pastor, I'm complacent about God's word and I admit it, what should I do? Please write this down and then do it. Plead, that's what you can do. You can plead with God to show you the tremendous gift that he's given you by giving you daily access to his word. You can plead with God to give you a hunger for his word that would not be satisfied until you hear from him. Not media, not shopping, not work, nothing else but him. What's gonna happen when you plead with God for the things that he wants in your life? He's gonna answer you, right, Bill? That's what he's gonna do, he's gonna answer you. And when he answers you, here's the next thing I want you to do. After you plead with God and he gives you just a taste of a hunger that you have for his word and you go to it, that one time when you ask them to give you the hunger, you go to it, create healthy habits to remove distraction. Would you, would you please put app limits on your phone and your children's phone and your grandchildren's phone? I do it for myself and I'm a big boy. <laughs> and I give my wife the password, why? Because it's good for me. Put app limits on your phone. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody and they'll show you. Ask a parent of a teenager, they know how to do app limits. Or you should, mom and dad. Okay, that was free. Refuse to answer notifications of any kind while you're studying God's word. And if you don't have the capacity to ignore the notifications because you feel like you have to answer it every time, here's my next advice. Turn your phone off until you're done reading the word and you're done spending time in prayer. Whatever it is can wait. Do you remember the time when we weren't controlled by our phones? Just think back with me. Back when someone called you and you had to answer the phone from the wall. Hello? Right, you had to walk across the room. You couldn't walk too far because the cord didn't go so far. You had to stay right there. 
Do you remember the day when a notification didn't come in <laughs> and you didn't feel like you had to answer every notification, every text message, and every call all the time? I pray for the glory of God you would know what that feels like again. Give yourself accountability. Turn off your phone until you're done spending time with the Lord if that's what's necessary. Plead with God, create healthy habits. And then after you've created healthy habits, you have a plan, a time and a place, a plan for reading God's word, a time that you're gonna read it and a place that you're gonna do it. We talked about that in the new year, right, Billy? That was a great message, brother. Thank you for that. After you have a plan, time and place, then get accountability. So plead with God. After you plead with God, he's gonna give you an answer. Create healthy habit, habits to spend time with God, a plan, time and place, and then get accountability. Somebody that's gonna ask you, how's it going? What did God teach you from his word this week? Then after you have all of that, there's still one more step you have to take to fight complacency. You actually have to apply his word to your life. You have to do the hard work of knowing what it says and then the harder work of doing what it says. See, complacency can cause you to be a master of the knowledge about God's word without being mastered by God's word. Did you hear that? You can master your knowledge of God's word without being mastered by God's word. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And it's a chasm of difference spiritually. One is knowing, the other is living and applying. And God doesn't care near as much about the knowing as he does the applying. Have you taken advantage of God's word or have you taken it for granted? That's the question. I pray that we would no longer take it for granted, but we would use it for transformation in our lives and then sit back and watch him change us and change our perspective on everything. That's what you have access to with the power of God's word guided by his spirit as you apply it through prayer. So what's got you messed up right now? Which got you so burdened you can't sleep? World, what world issue is it? What financial issue is it? What school issue is it? What family problem is it? And then if it's there and it's ruining you, ask yourself the next question. How much time have I spent talking to God about it? And how much time have I spent in his word learning what to do in it? Yes, the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. Not only does Paul say that you have a privilege as a Jew because you have the works of God's word, look at the next question in verses three through four. Basically, he is saying, does Jewish unbelief, or really any unbelief, nullify God's faithfulness? Paul says, may it never be that God is true even though we're found as a liar. Some may have thought in the church that Paul is writing to, some may still think today that since God made promises of blessings and curses based upon the faithfulness to his law, that since Israel did not live up to their end of the bargain, that God would not live up to his. That's absurd. This is my second point. Praise God that he is faithful to us despite us. Never let his, faithful stop over, his faithfulness stop overwhelming you and blowing you away. 
When's the last time you just sat in a song and cried tears of joy? Because how long and how deep you were thinking about God's faithfulness? Some of us doubt it because we project our human failures upon God. We should not do that. God is not like us. He's always faithful to us. He never breaks his promises. And just because God became like you in the man of Jesus Christ, and just because you were created in the image of God, does not mean that God fails like you fail. No, Jesus Christ is the perfect example of this. He is our great high priest, and he's able to sympathize, Hebrews says, with all of our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet, pretty big yet, he was without sin. That's what makes Jesus different than you and me. His faithfulness comes from his lack of sinfulness. It's been that way from the beginning, faithful to us despite us. If you look at Adam and Eve and God came to them, though he punished them, though he disciplined them, it was because he loved them. He never abandoned them and he never stopped loving them. He was always faithful to him. You go back and look at all the covenants that God made with his people. He always kept his end of the bargain despite them not keeping theirs. If you think about Genesis chapter 15, I want you to put this picture in your mind of God making a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to get a cow. I want you to get a ram. And I want you to get a goat. I want you to split them in half. And I want you to lay them on the ground separate. Kind of weird, right? We kind of forget that part of the covenant in Genesis 15. But that's what God said. Why? Because thousands of years ago, if we were going to make an agreement, Charles, we would say, okay, let's get a cow. We'll divide it. And we'll separate the cow on either side of this pathway. And then we're going to join hands. And we're going to walk in between. That's weird. Now all that blood and death. Why? To symbolize the importance of the agreement and the permanence of the agreement. So when we walk through and we see death on either side, we would realize that's what way is waiting for us if we do not keep our end of the bargain. But in Genesis chapter 15, God doesn't take Abraham by the hand and walk between the dead animals. What does the Bible say? It says he has a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch that passed between the two halves while Abraham watched. Why? Indicating the covenant of grace that God was making with Abraham, making it with his people, and the covenant of grace that he's already made with you today through your faith in Christ was not dependent on Abraham nor any man. It was dependent on God himself. It was a lasting covenant that ultimately would be fulfilled in Christ. Israel right away broke the covenant. Almost immediately after making the covenant, Abraham broke the covenant by falling into sin, yet God was still faithful to him anyway. And we would do well this morning to remember that it was God who took the death punishment even though he held his end of the deal and Abraham didn't when he himself in Christ died in our place. So no, Israel's unbelief nor your unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. He's always faithful to us despite us. He kept his end of the agreement and even paid for your failures and my failures when we did not keep ours. But God's wrath is still waiting for you, even if you know his scriptures, even if you know about his faithfulness, if you have not repented and believed in him and the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son. What makes the new covenant and the gospel so powerful is it shows for eternity that God is faithful to us despite us. What should this do for us is the question. Most of you already believe this. I'll tell you what it should do. It should set your hearts on fire. 
It should drive you to your knees in praise and worship. So many of the great hymns of old were written and penned by men that understood God's faithfulness. That's that great hymn. Thomas Chisholm, great is thy faithfulness. He says, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fell not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Never project a human failure on your heavenly father. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And he is always faithful to you despite you. What you need to do is believe in him and the sacrifice of his son. But there's one more question that Paul anticipates and he dives into it in verses five and eight. And if you're just reading these verses, it can be very convoluted, but here's the crux of what Paul is arguing against. It's this question that if God's righteousness is revealed through man's sinfulness, should we not sin all the more so his righteousness can be seen all the more? And if God's good comes out of evil, shouldn't we do more evil so that he can be made to look as more good? Paul says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, that's my translation. <laughs> he didn't even answer it, it's so absurd. And here's the point that, do, that does get some people today. God's grace is not an incentive to sin. God's grace is not an incentive or a license to sin. Now, am I convinced that Paul actually thought people thought like this in the church? Not really, but I am convinced that he thought other people were saying this about him, that he thought like this. That's what he's trying to say here. They said lots of things about Paul because he stood up for the gospel. They thought lots of things about you. It's gonna put you at odds with almost everybody. Paul, because of his faithfulness to push back against everybody for the sake of the gospel, got him in trouble with the Jews. They said he ruined or discounted the law, got him in trouble with the Gentiles. They say he was the cause and the gospel that he preached was the, the cause of the fall of Rome. Paul says, I don't care. I don't care. I'm gonna continue to preach Christ and him crucified. He says, it's insane to think that somehow sin must increase so the attributes of God can continue to increase. It's like this entitled child who responds to the grace of their parents with more entitlement. It doesn't even make sense. It's, it's like a football team that has a, a lot of hype in the beginning of the season. Let's say game three, they suffer a devastating loss. And they got two choices at that moment. They can use the loss as a means to give up, or they can use the loss and learn from the loss as a means to get better. Let's just go with me for a second. That team uses that loss for the good, and they say, we're not gonna take anything for granted. Nothing's given to us. We're not gonna take our talent for granted or our coaches for granted. The only thing that we're gonna get is what we earn by our teamwork and our sacrifice and our dedication. Let's say that that loss is what leads to the salvation of their season, and they go on to have a great season, maybe even win a championship. Would you therefore say the next year, if they struggle, they should seek to lose a game so they can continue to get better? <laughs> like, that's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's the same way you would say if you and your spouse came together stronger after an adulterous affair through counseling and hard work and the grace of God, does that mean that the next time you struggle, you should seek infidelity as a means to grow your relationship? But Pastor, that's crazy. Van's like, no. <laughs> You can say it, man. It, no, it's crazy. In the same way, just because God's righteousness and grace is revealed when we sin does not mean that we should all sin all the more to put his faithfulness on display. The heart of a true follower in responding to God's grace 
is so overwhelmed by his patience to us and his sacrifice for us, they want to eradicate sin all the more to honor him. That's the answer. That's what God wants from your heart. But entitlement, what you think you deserve on your own, can skew the picture. That's what I'm trying to say. Paul was warning against it, and I plead with you against it as well. If your entitlement comes in this form of taking the scriptures for granted, may you start to yearn for God's word, and you use that word to transform your daily life. If God's faithfulness has become mundane to you, may God give you such a picture of his faithfulness that it blows you away on a daily basis. If you're sitting here today and you say, well, God's grace is gonna allow me to continue to sin, so I'm gonna continue to live the life that I want. His grace is gonna be there for me. You don't get it. You don't get it. And I pray that God's grace would overwhelm you in such a way that you use it as fuel for righteous living. May God protect us. I, I do see him protecting us, by the way. May God protect us from this attitude of entitlement. But maybe you're sitting here today and what keeps playing over and over in your mind is that sacrifice of Abraham and the covenant he made with God and how it was fulfilled in Christ. And you're thinking, wait a second. I thought I had to earn my way to God, that I could do enough good to get to God, that one day my good's gonna outweigh my bad, but you're telling me that I'm already bad? And Jesus died and exchanged my badness for his goodness on the cross, and he rose from the dead. So if I were to repent and believe in his death and resurrection, I could be saved. That's what I'm telling you. And if that's the message, God is speaking to your heart loud and clear. Today is the day of salvation for you. What you need to do is repent of your sin. Repent of the entitled attitude you came here and in here today with that you think, I'm gonna be okay with it when I die because whatever. No, it's only Jesus and his sacrifice and resurrection. If you need to repent and believe today during this next song, you need to sit there and say, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sin. You need to sit there between you and God and say, I believe you died in my place, Lord Jesus. I believe that you rose from the dead. Be my savior today and forever. That's the prayer you need to pray. We hope that you have enjoyed this sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about us or know what it means to follow Jesus, visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org.